know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are grateful for the opportunity to speak with Professor Adeline Lowe, who joined the UW-Madison Political Science Department last fall. Professor Lowe has a BA in Politics and Economics from Columbia University, an MA in Politics from New York University, and a PhD in Political Science from the University of California, San Diego. Professor Lowe's research interests and teaching focus on the design of statistical tools for prediction and measurement for applied social sciences. Recently, her published works on attitudes towards refugees and how empathy and information impact public support has received both international attention and acclaim. Professor Lowe is currently working on a number of wide-ranging projects, including one that seeks to improve statistical methods to study political violence empirically, and another that examines public attitudes towards refugees amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. Professor Lowe, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time to come on to our little podcast, 1050 Bascom. And there's so much that we have to talk about. But first, we know that our student and alumni listeners enjoy getting to know our faculty members a little bit more. So the first couple questions I want to ask you are just kind of about you and just getting to know you. So first, where's home for you? Where where did you grow up and what would you consider to be your hometown? Yeah, thanks guys for, for having me and also for giving me the chance to sort of chat a little bit about informal stuff as well uh, to, to kick us off. Um, so home for me is primarily New York City. Um, I grew up on the Upper West Side of, of New York and I would say that that's sort of where I spent most of my life of my childhood, but then secondarily also in Taiwan. My family is ethnically Taiwanese, and so we go back a lot. So those two places are the places I probably bobbed around the most. And how did you get so interested in politics and research? And, you know, like, how did you develop, you know, this interest in academia and how did you become a professor here. Yeah, so I, I wish I could say, you know, I kind of knew growing up that this is exactly what I was going to do. And I was very targeted about it. But um, actually, I, I have a fair number of academics in my family. And so I kind of always knew what it would look like if I were to go into academia. But I, I was more interested in political science and the social sciences and less interested in my family's preferences, which were mathematics. <laughs> um, I'm actually not good at mathematics, actually. And so I, I spent a lot of time trying to get better at it, but not really enjoying it. And so I, I thought after I finished high school and college that I would never touch it ever again, which clearly has very much not been the case. But I, I spent a lot of time doing internships to sort of figure out what it was that I was passionate about. And so I, I actually worked for the Brooklyn DA's office, the International Rescue Committee, the U.S. Attorney's Office in downtown Manhattan. I worked with not-for-profits and for Sherman and Sterling, which is a giant corporate law firm um, for lots of different places. And ultimately realized that the main thing that motivated me through all of these various jobs and internships was asking questions about why and what interventions would change things. And, you know, what are the mechanisms by which 
certain types of phenomena were occurring. So for instance, when I was working at the U.S. Attorney's Office, I was much more occupied by why our jury system worked the way it did and what our institutions were doing in the courtroom that could potentially adversely affect outcomes, more so than litigating the case. And because of that, I spent some time just sort of double checking to make sure before I dove back for, you know, five or six more years of school that this was what I wanted to do. And so I I did a little bit more training at, at NYU while I was simultaneously working at the U.S. Attorney's Office, again, just to be sure. And, and in doing that, I in getting my master's there, that sort of reaffirmed my sense of this is this is really what I want to be spending my time on. And then I, I actually, for my application year for my PhD, I spent a year at the Toulouse School of Economics because there was still a small part of me that was kind of unsure about which branch of social science I was sort of most interested in. And there was enough overlap between political science and economics that I wasn't 100% sure. And then in spending that time, I realized, you know, I, I was interested in a lot of the quantitative approaches that one often sees in economics and seeing how they would play out for political questions. And so ultimately that would mean a political science program. And so that actually also was why I started becoming more interested in quantitative methodology because I wanted to ask answer certain questions, but often if we do that empirically, you know, you have to consider under what context a particular method is better or worse, testing whether that's true and the assumptions that you make. And so in order to answer those questions more fully, I ended up working a lot on how to sort of further develop methods. And so often you'll see that the types of methodological papers that I'm working on are are because of some issue that I couldn't figure out um, in a substantive application. And and that's really the motivation behind a lot of the, the actual research that I do. Well, thank you for sharing that. And also thank you for kind of walking us through how your intellectual evolution between some of these uh, more economical and political studies throughout your time at both NYU and UC San Diego. But kind of then moving on from that, you know, a little bit more of a a fun question. As you mentioned, a lot of your work has engaged sophistical political methodology and worked on developing more powerful methods to approach important questions in politics. And, you know, I think it's kind of fair to say that people in the U.S. are becoming more and more aware in the first place, of the existence of the people who do this kind of stuff and have media obsessions just with things like the polls and other just projections. And as a result, we've gotten literally millions of people following some of these like self-proclaimed data nerds on places like Twitter and other news organizations. So do you consider yourself a data nerd? And if so, are you kind of enjoying this newfound media attention or for no better word for it, being treated almost kind of like a like a prophet a little bit, like a political prophet? I don't know if I would necessarily call myself a data nerd. I think I would just call myself a little bit of a nerd. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I happen to nerd out on are, is, is empirical data. Um, but I, I think I'm... I I am really excited about how more people who are interested in just accumulating reliable information and sort of being objective about the evaluation process as well as the the gathering process. And so I am excited about, about that. And I think it's great that, you know, technology has afforded us way more sources 
than we would have had before, right? So now everything on the internet is literally at our fingertips. And so the average graduate researcher or undergraduate researcher can scrape anything on the internet and sort of get a, get a sense of just patterns that are happening in things that they care about, which is very, very cool. I, I also think that it should come along with, and this is more boring, but much more important, knowledge on how to be careful and caveating where we got the information, what it's representative of, and if there are any possible measurement errors surrounding it that we should care about. And then, of course, our ability to consume it should also come with these types of questions and ability to assess the answers for them. So it is kind of a boring thing to say, but I, I think that I, I am very excited about the availability. I, I am also really excited about people hopefully also asking all these important questions and then assessing. And then one thing to kind of follow up on that really quickly, you mentioned how one of the great things about this is that there are more people who are paying attention to these kind of things, but that also means that there has to be a certain amount of literacy on data or critical thinking on media consumers in terms of interpreting this data. And, you know, I was kind of joking before when I was talking about political profits, but it seems sometimes that that is the way people sometimes take these projections and maybe that's not the best way to do it. So would you have any just general advice for consumers of media or people who are maybe following these so-called data nerds just to remain vigilant and critical and things to watch for in some of this data? Yeah, I mean, that topic is is just huge, I think. And, and it's sort of undervalued, unfortunately. And I, I'm sure there could be whole courses taught on just this topic. But I think for rules of thumb, that might be helpful just on a day-to-day. -day, you know, the next time you see a Twitter post that has a graph on it. I think a couple of questions you can always have at the top of your mind is, what's the sample? <laughs> Where did it come from, right? And then how, how are the Y and X axis measured and asked, right? And then also, are these axes reasonable? <laughs> um, and then does it answer the question that ultimately the person who posted said it was supposed to answer? Right, um, those are simple things that I think any logical person can at least pick through. Um, and, and if we just slow down a little bit before we get super excited about the correlation that we see in the plot or where the bar plot is highest, we already can answer a lot of questions in, in sort of what does this mean? That is something that I wish everyone could hear. I think that everyone in the world should take a media literacy class and a data literacy class, just like you said. But anyways, <laughs> um, you know, you have been at UW-Madison now for over a year or about, you know, a little bit more than a year. Um, and while a chunk of that has, you know, obviously been during the pandemic, how have you liked living and working in Madison so far? So it's been really awesome. COVID notwithstanding, I, I would say that the sort of coolest part about Madison, UW-Madison in particular, and this was one of the reasons why it made it so easy to come, um, was that the people are really, really great. Um, the stereotypes about Midwesterners being really friendly, being welcoming, kind of neighborly is, is definitely true. But I think it's especially true in the UW-Madison community. I mean, there are things that sort of make day-to-day -day living also pretty great about the city itself. So food is fresh, air is clean, you know, it's easy to bike everywhere. But honestly, I the thing that's sort of kept me going, um, especially during the pandemic, has been 
just being in awe and hope scrolling through the work of people at UW-Madison. I mean, the numbers of undergrads and staff and, um, and grad students and faculty who were involved in just making sure that democracy was going to continue to work um, and being involved in the election efforts and just being civic minded um, is, is kind of incredible. Um, and and it's, it's all sort of grassroots based, which makes it even more interesting and commendable. But I also think that just the, the production of, of new knowledge at the university is kind of cool, right? Have you seen that? I mean, the science fairs are just, they're just incredible um, at all levels, right? Undergrad, graduate, um, faculty, postdoc, et cetera. Um, but in COVID times, it's just become really, really obvious how resilient and community oriented and creative people are here. Like for instance, I'm gonna call out a couple of people just in case, you know, there are folks who are interested in things not related to data political science. Colleen Conroy over at the theater department has really cool voice and accent stuff that's been coming out or Song Gao over at Geography um, has been looking at whether mobile location big data can predict potentially infected areas for COVID spreads using mass data. Um, so I, I just feel like I have a lot to learn, <laughs> um, but it's been really good to be able to literally just go through all the cool stuff that UW-Madison has been producing to stay sort of hopeful. <laughs> Absolutely. I, um, I love your use of hope scrolling because I'm sure a lot of us have been doing the opposite recently. I'm scrolling, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, in any case, we are we are extremely glad that you're liking Madison so far. But now let's um let's jump into some of like your your research topics. I'm really excited to talk about because I know a piece of your research that recently got published was engendering empathy, begetting backlash, American attitudes towards Syrian refugees. Can you tell us a little bit like about this research that you did and your findings, and especially how they're related to issues about? empathy for refugees? Yeah, of course. So Claire Molina and I had a series of works that were motivated by seeing a lot of empirical work that seemed to show what was kind of a little bit disheartening, how, how easy it is to promote exclusionary attitudes and behaviors towards minority outgroups. And so we were motivated by this to explore a bit more into what could pr promote the opposite, inclusionary behaviors and attitudes instead, especially towards vulnerable outgroups. And we were in particular interested in refugees and migrants broadly, but, but in this case, refugees. In the work that you, you just cited, we specifically focused on the Syrian case and then tested whether a very light touch perspective taking intervention so simply imagining if you yourself were a refugee, what that would entail, um, whether that would encourage people to take on more empathetic behaviors towards refugees. And in this case, we measured that behavior um, as writing a letter to the then unknown 45th president of the United States. So this is right before uh, the 2016 election in support of refugees. So writing this letter. And we found that this was actually possible and that it was actually more effective than say, providing certain types of information about refugees to people. And this is just part of a larger ongoing research agenda on migration and empathy generally, which we're joined by Scott Williamson and Lauren Prather. And we're, we're interested in the different contexts in which empathy can play a key role in bridging distances between in-groups and minority out-groups. And so we actually have another paper that's currently um, under the review process that harnesses this shared identity of immigration. 
So the outgroup here is our immigrants and whether asking you to not necessarily think about being a refugee, but just remember recalling your closest immigration story in your family. Now, 99% of Americans have an immigration story. So most people can at least recall the closest one to them. And then whether that process of sort of re-identifying yourself as immigrant descendant or immigrant adjacent would help bridge that gap a little bit more. And, and what we found is that actually this, this does indeed seem to encourage um, empath empathetic attitudes towards immigrants. And so this is part of this sort of general question of how do we, how do we bridge that a bit more? That is absolutely fascinating. And we would, we would love to talk more about that with you in the future at, at, at some point too. But the next question I'd like I'd like to ask about while we're still kind of on the subject of refugees generally and the outgoing Trump administration is that, you know, as you mentioned, you and your colleagues finished that article before the 2016 election, but as we all know, during the Trump administration, they I, it doesn't really seem like they read that letter, I suppose. There wasn't exactly refugee-friendly rhetoric coming out of the White House. That's putting it mildly. And of course, one of the first actions we saw the Trump administration take was an attempt to enact a ban of majority Muslim countries coming into the, U, uh, coming into the U.S. in 2017. However, what's been kind of interesting is at the same time, it seems like there has been a public opinion shift in favor of accepting refugees. For example, an Ipsos Global study that was released in June 2020 found that now 72% of U.S. adults have the opinion that people should be able to take refuge in other countries, including the U.S., to escape war or persecution. And that's up from 62% only a year ago. So, First, I'm wondering, what do you think explains this change in public opinion? And how much is perhaps the methodology of these kind of studies related to that? So yeah, I think it's really interesting that you underline particularly methodology in this, because I, you know, I don't know if, if it's responsible for all of the variation in the findings. You know, it could be that attitudes towards this particular policy has changed over time. But it's also true that we have to be careful thinking about how surveys are fielded and in what context they're fielded. So we see this type of variance in types of, in attitudes and policy preferences towards refugees, this variance over space and time, right? So if the refugees are specifically noted as from a certain place, or if you're asking this question in different moments in time, we see huge variation, right? So then what this means is that we have to be a little careful when we ask specifically for policy preferences of respondents to provide the specific context. Is it today? Is it from anywhere? Is it based on what definition of refugee for the respondent to answer and to compare against similar contexts? And actually, this is one question that my research group and I have, for instance, found in preliminary studies that we're conducting on the types of priors Americans have about refugees and migrants and whether they update on those priors. So the definitions that, that we found that, that Americans tend to have in their minds for refugees and immigrants and asylees are often really, really blurry. So it's unclear <laughs> sometimes whether they're actually thinking about what is the legal international definition of refugees versus a sort of more uh, politicized definition of potentially immigrant 
whether it's economic immigrant or other types of immigrants, um, and asylees, which is also a very sort of unknown concept. So whether a particular respondent is hearing you ask about refugees and then translating that into Christian immigrant from Canada or China, or a Muslim Syrian refugee might be based on such unmeasured priors. So being super careful about how we think about that information might help. Among other possible variation though, I guess what I'm trying to draw attention to is the relative types of filled in information <laughs> that we should consider when we compare these studies by the respondents themselves. Like what are they filling in that you haven't told them that may be present in their mind? So what's who's their reference group that they're thinking of? Um, and what, are, what kinds of priors do they have about them? And then under what context, time and space are respondents being asked about the refugees and is there conflation with other types of migrants? So these are all things that I think we could pretty reliably just check <laughs> and then amass different surveys together based off of similar contexts. Yeah, that's extremely interesting. And I know you also have another article under review called Attitudes Towards Refugees in COVID-19 Times. Can you tell us a little bit about this study and like how you're collecting data and what some of the findings are? Sure, yeah, yeah. So this is, <laughs> this is a project that we were actually called upon to pair up with actual advocacy organizations. So this is Refugee International and uh, Refugee Council. And so the background to this is that we, we see that there's evidence that migrants make up a larger proportion of essential workers than they do the general population. And they're more likely to face political framing, suggesting that they themselves maybe bring or spread the disease. And this narrative of migrants as public health threats is not new. So as far back as like 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, the justification for excluding immigrants leaned heavily on fears of disease threats. And recently in 2014, Adida et al. showed that politicization of Ebola actually decreases support for immigrants. And so in this context, refugee organizations like Refugees International and Refugee Council are fighting two kinds of fronts amidst this pandemic, pushing back on the risk of heightened prejudice and antagonism, but also trying to mobilize a probably very unmobilized public in their engagement with their mission. And so migrants face this increased sociopolitical vulnerability, even as they grow in importance um, to the economy under COVID. And so the general purpose for us in this study was to assess certain narratives about refugees that these groups, these organizations wanted to convey to the broader American community, hopefully in um, providing information, but also mobilizing them ultimately. And so we identified four dimensions of variation for these types of narratives. One was mention of COVID-19 specifically. Two was a focus on local versus broader community when seeing narratives of the refugees and their contributions. Three was emphasizing everyday acts of solidarity and refugee or refugees as sort of occupational heroes. So this is like nurses or doctors. And then four, whether the label itself of refugee versus immigrant has differential effects on public response. And so we decided to use social media as a vehicle for engagement. And this was for several reasons. First, we, we focus on Facebook because Facebook has an A-B testing platform that allows advertisers to assign ads randomly to Facebook audiences. So we actually had um, a randomized experiment in the field. It's also a way that these policy groups and organizations are already currently trying to reach out to people. So they're already using Facebook and other social media platforms to do this. And so the study becomes a little bit more realistic in, in the setting. And so we constructed different versions of this refugee narrative ad 
And then we measure which one is more likely to attract clicks. And we, we interpret a click as some measure of public engagement with the ad um, and therefore with the mission of the organization. Now we can't clearly you know, interpret it as a huge mobilization or support, but we're, we're taking this as sort of light evidence in the positive side, at least to know more about the organization and, uh, and maybe what it's talking about. And our expectation was that these proposed experimental inter interventions could help identify effective refugee narratives that promote inclusionary attitudes and behaviors through mobilizing citizen interest and, and engagement with organizations like these. We actually <laughs> just finished collecting the data, I think a week ago. And so our preliminary data analyses suggest that um, at the very least, we have very strong location-specific narratives. So of the four types of variations that we, we tried, we're already seeing that the location aspect, so supporting a local community rather than a community at large in the ad. So this is an ad that discusses a refugee um, named Mustafa who received explicit permission to um, put on these ads and, and tell his story. Discussing a story about how he's helping um, elderly deliver their groceries during times of COVID in a local community, in this case, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, was much more effective in garnering interest than if we just talked about same ad, but it was just Pennsylvania or the US, right? So the information that it was local was much more effective and, and generates just much more interest. And, you know, we'll hopefully see what some of the other, other dimensions will tell us, but our expectations are that, um, that we will see differences based off of whether the labeling of the person in the ad is specifically refugee or immigrant, as well as whether we're talking about COVID or not, and whether the mode in which that the help is being given by refugees. So either through delivery of uh, groceries or as working as a, as a nurse or a doctor will affect different types of interest. That is, that's, that's really fascinating. Quick, interesting point of, I guess, research. Is it common these days to use Facebook and the mechanisms on other social media sites as a research tool? How common is it these days to use these kind of tools with social media as a way to conduct these sorts of field experiments? I, I think it's it's reasonably popular to use different types of social media platforms, especially ones that have already incorporated sort of experimental settings. I will say that Facebook has had a very sort of, let's say, heightened history <laughs> of interaction with ac academics in that there have been a lot of different types of experiments that have been fielded through Facebook that have faced different types of criticism. One thing to always keep in mind when whenever we, we try to learn anything off of these platforms is that they're a very specific type of subpopulation in the world, right? The types of people who are willing and, and active to be on, on Facebook are likely a very specific set of people. And so that's something that we we do keep in mind. Um, and, and every researcher who, who sort of use, utilizes these spaces should keep in mind. And I think that that's also why sometimes um, when these experiments are also fielded on places like Twitter, we also have have the same types of caveats, right? We have to really understand who's there, who we're moving, who we're not moving. Now, at the same time, like I mentioned before, one of the, the motivations for using Facebook is just because in this setting, we were evaluating certain ads that policymakers for these organizations were already considering using. So to some extent, we're evaluating a real life intervention. And so the, the policy implications are sort of more obvious. There are instances where it could be that the question that you're asking or the, the, the treatment that you're thinking about may not 
be reasonably fielded in a place like Facebook, right? So for instance, if you're trying to reach really like the just able to vote, so often college freshmen or sophomores or juniors in some cases, right, who are just able to vote and you want to sort of get a sense of whether a particular type of treatment might make them more likely to have this attitude or that behavior, et cetera, then maybe Facebook is not your best option because it's sort of understood that Facebook might be an underrepresentation of this particular group, right? And maybe other places are better bets. Um, and so so it's it's going to be guided by the question you're interested in always. But but to, to sort of in a nutshell, um, yes, there, there are a lot of um, these types of platforms that I think researchers are becoming more and more willing to dive into. Yeah, that is really interesting. And you know, the next the next time I'm, I'm, I'm back at my parents house, and they're yelling at me for staying on my phone for too long, I'm just going to tell them that I'm doing research. Right. Um, I'm being an active part of uh, social science research. <laughs> Indeed, social science, social media, no difference. Um, but of course, you know, if we're talking about attitudes towards refugees and immigrants, and also COVID nineteen, one factor that I really don't think we can ignore that we'd be remiss not to bring up is the president and President Trump's rhetoric surrounding the coronavirus. On the campaign trail, he has been insisting that this virus is the fault of China, and he specifically called it the China virus and continually insists that it is not just associated with China, but also their fault. And of course, I think that there's just gleaning this rhetoric, one would assume that this could have some kind of impact on attitudes towards groups like refugees and immigrants and the kind of things that you're studying and looking at. How do you think this sort of rhetoric might impact people's attitudes on refugees in COVID-19 times? And do you maybe have any preliminary findings that suggest that it might be making some sort of difference? So I I think the short answer is unfortunately no. Um, I don't have research that speaks to specifically this very, very important question. And I'm not a China expert, so I can't speak in an informed manner on how this type of rhetoric might, for instance, impact refugees from China, for which we have a significant number in the U.S. But broadly speaking, though, what the exclusionary politics literature would tell us is that pivoting the conversation towards an us versus them mentality can very quickly create large perceived social distances between the us and the them. And the magnitudes of which our work on perspective taking shows empathy interventions can work, but the magnitudes are a lot smaller. So if we were to sort of take that type of information, we might be a little bit worried about how these negative interventions might very quickly outpace any positive ones that we know could be effective um, in ameliorating, for instance, fears or or dislike or attitudes. And then beyond the factual aspects of these claims, the the WHO explicitly warns against regionalizing diseases for, for very related reasons of politicizing health issues. This can create lasting damage that may just take a lot of time and effort to recover from. And this is one of the reasons why we draw from 
learn, we, we want to learn more about how people update on information. So I mentioned this earlier, we were looking at, we have a study going on, an ongoing study, looking at uh, Americans priors on immigrants and refugees. But this is part of an ongoing effort to understand whether they update that information based on source and type about these outgroup members. So whether if you give people information that may be very different from their current priors based on the type of information and who's giving it and where maybe even where your priors are relative to this information, how much are you willing to update given it? Right. And so I, I think we're we're particularly interested in this, in, in especially because of the the recent years, um, the, the focus on how we might need campaigns against misinformation um, and that there's been a, a, um, a growing environment of distrust, especially towards information as provided by the media, but even information potentially provided by the government. Mm hmm. Thank you for weighing in on that. I do do really ap appreciate that. The next kind of thing, while we're still on this topic, that um, I want to bring up is that a lot of our podcast across the last 10 months has kind of been focused on talking about a lot of this deep division and polarization among people in the U.S. about the election, COVID-19, and racial relations. So I think that fits in exactly with what we're talking about here. And we've been talking with a lot of different guests about the role of empathy across so many of these issues. Empathy seems to be central to some of the published in progress and work under review. And you're currently working on a project called Encouraging Empathy When It Is Costly in the U.S. with your colleague, Professor Renshin, in our department. Can you talk about this research and your interest in empathy and studying politics more generally? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, this is a project that I'm super excited about um, with Jonathan. And actually, we we also are collaborating with Lotem Bassan, who's one of our graduate students in the program, on just kind of understanding when we can encourage empathy, if it works, right, then how can we encourage it more and how can we do it in a way that's scalable, right? Because maybe you could do it to one person with a lot of effort, but how do we do this sort of as a nation or how do we do it in, in just larger groups generally? And so we think that at, at a baseline, empathy can be really powerful and positive for shaping and changing policy preferences. This has been shown to encourage cooperative or inclusionary behavior and warming attitudes, but it's also been shown to entail costs, um, both cognitive and emotional. It just takes effort for people to be empathetic. And so in this setting, we're asking what are ways we can overcome those types of costs. And so in our in a series of studies, we first verify that there are in fact cognitive costs to empathy. And then we use a, an incentive compatible reservation wage design um, that we put together to estimate a monetary cost um, to being empathetic versus um, an alternative task, which is more objective. And we find that it's actually something like 10, 10 cents on average. So 10 cents compared to the dollars so is about 10%. And then we propose peer praise, actually, as an effective and possibly light touch and scalable way to overcome such costs and promoting empathetic behavior. So we develop a second study with an intervention that gener generates naturalistic peer praise. Um, so we basically asked a whole bunch of people, what do you think about someone who engages in empathetic behavior? And then just to make sure, we also asked them to do the same thing for the objective task. But we gathered from here sort of 
real praise that peers might, might produce. And then in a third study, we designed a randomized experiment that uses this naturalistic peer praise. And then we praise <laughs> respondents for empathetic behavior and then see if they are more likely to actually engage in empathy. And we find that this does in fact work. And these are, they don't know who these peers are. We, they just think, they just know that these are peers on the same platform who have said these nice things about other people who engage in empathy. And so we propose some potential emotional mechanisms that might be at play for making this effective. And we're working on a fourth and fifth experiment that sort of teases this out a little bit more. And in particular, we're really interested in our follow-up work to look at targets of the empathy. So the types of the outgroups and their experiences um, along different racial groups, along gender groups, et cetera, um, and the experiences that they have, whether it's something scary or something that's that's frustrating, um, as well as who the sources of praise are, right? What types of peers matter, maybe more or less, and the longevity, hopefully, of being able to elicit empathetic behavior. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. <laughs> Um, but our pre preliminary findings are just really kind of hopeful for us. Um, so hopefully that will that will be something in working paper form soon. Absolutely. That is a, like extremely interesting research, and I'm really excited to see how it turns out and how it continues to develop. And uh, as, as we're wrapping up, we've been asking a lot of our guests on 1050 Bascom what advice they have for listeners and students who are navigating you know, a really divisive world. And as we're entering this new era of that divisiveness, there are some people in the country that are very happy with the result, and obviously some people in the country that are very not happy. What advice do you have for both people who are celebrating President-elect Biden's win? Also, that's the first time we're mentioning that on this podcast, President-elect <laughs> Biden. What advice do you have for people who, ha who are celebrating President-elect Biden's win and those who are not in a good space right now in terms of fostering communication and compromise necessary in democracy? Yeah, um, I, I imagine that, that there's probably a lot of really great um, and helpful information that folks like Kathy um, and David have been able to offer about this. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit more, I'm probably like going to play second fiddle to them on this as is appropriate. Um, but I think that one of the really cool and great things about democracy is that this is going to happen over and over and over. This is a consistent data generating process um, and we will see wins and losses on many different policy dimensions for any given month or year. Um, so to some extent, and this just may be sort of a bigger event where we sort of have an update on, on signaling for everyone. But to some extent, this is happening on a day-to-day -day basis when we make policies, when we vote anytime on the, on the legis uh, legislative floor, right? So um, being able to, to still talk to one another and, and um, engage and create policy will matter at any point in this democracy. <laughs> It just seems a little bit more right now, I think, because an election is such a big institutional thing. As with any sort of high emotion event, obviously it, it will be really helpful for us all to sort of take some time to just process those emotions. Some, for some, it will mean taking the time for ourselves and then some, for some it will mean catharsis with other people. <laughs> um, but I do think that um, it's possible that we can focus on policies that improve the general welfare of the country um, and come to similar spaces to make those improvements a reality. And some of those topics are just harder to handle, 
right? Obviously, we're pretty split on some policy dimensions, but I also think that from, from what the surveys have suggested this last year, it's pretty clear the, the main topics at the top of Americans' minds are just there, right? We know at least what we have to tackle together, um, and, such as how to handle and bring us out of the pandemic, right? So at the very least, we can identify where we've all clustered. Um, that's not divided. <laughs> the details might be, but that is not divided. Um, I also think it might sound really, really boring again, but it might be helpful if we just kind of return back a little bit after we've gotten all our cathartic emotions a little bit, you know, and, and like felt it out for a bit. If we return to factual and technical reporting a bit more um, in the long run, if we just establish some standards for data presentation and a key contributor to, but of course not the only input behind the disparity between partisan groups has been the role of misinformation and distrust in institutions, right? So I think spending time to repair this type of trust and alleviating misinformation will take a lot of time and effort and might result in, for the short run at least, needing more dry, technocratic, heavily caveated presentation of information, right? So at the very least, when we put down on a page between to two sort of very different voices, what the facts are. We start off with those and we have agreement on that. Um, and it might just be super dry and that's okay. Um, so at the very least, we start off with the sense that we're gonna work with the same premises. And I think even getting that is gonna be really, really hard, but worth the effort. Um, and if we sort of try to disengage in, in emotions for just that part, we could potentially get a little bit more traction moving forward. Um, but, you know, I, like I said, I would defer definitively to some of my awesome colleagues who, who know even more about, about the mechanics of that and how, how partisanship might play out. Thank yeah, you so we, much. Thank you so this much. This is a great program. Yeah. yeah thank you so much for having me. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle, and recorded remotely for now.